0: This weekend, T-Mobile announced that it would acquire Sprint in a $26.5 billion stock deal. But in today's trading, both wireless carriers are suffering sharp declines amid investor fears of antitrust action against the deal. Speaking with Bloomberg earlier today, T-Mobile CEO John Ledger explained why the deal is not anti-competitive.
1: And everybody today has a thought four to three. It's not four to three. Come on. There's seven or eight key wireless players now. Charters coming in anytime soon. Secondly, more important. here's my headline. It's zero to one. There's nobody doing 5G. We're going to be the first. That's what the country should think about.
0: All right, there is some debate about those numbers. The deal would take the top four mobile carriers down to three players, and he is talking about Charter and some of the other players in the field. Joining us is Sarah Ford Bloomberg News corporate influence editor. And Sarah, what makes the companies think that Justice won't oppose the deal now when it opposed a merger of the two companies in 2014? Well,
2: actually, yes. All the analysts who are familiar with the antitrust framework are telling us this is going to be a very difficult sell to the antitrust division. Um, These companies have actually been trying to combine in one way or another for many years, and they were already previously rebuffed in 2014 when um, SoftBank came to the DOJ and said, you know, can I do this deal? And he was told in no uncertain terms to not even think about it. So, um, yes, the companies have a framework. They're talking about other entrants, but we're still looking at the top four players moving into three if this deal were to, to happen. And um, the, the precedent is that the antitrust division just doesn't feel that's enough competition in this already concentrated industry. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, if, what is the advantage that they might have? Because if they are able to pull off this uh, creation of a 5G network, isn't that part of the president's infrastructure initiative anyway? I mean, wouldn't that give them a little traction in this? Well, clearly the tension here is going to be interesting. And we are very intent on making sure we have a champion that can build out the 5G network. So that certainly will will be part of the debate. But that is not part of the antitrust analysis. Uh-huh. So <laughs> it's it's an interesting issue, but it's really out outside of the scope of an antitrust review. And so the question here is, you know, how concentrated is this market? How much choice would be left for consumers? and another very important point, um, which we made in our, our mover this morning, is that the antitrust division is already investigating the top two players in this industry, AT and T and Verizon, for anti-competitive conduct. So, in addition to the potential for more concentration, you're already seeing potentially anti-competitive behavior, and that will really raise a red flag um, if this deal, you know, for this review. So, so it's not looking um, pretty, and that's uh, I think we. We can see the market is realizing that by the fact that the stocks are down massively this morning um, on these concerns.
0: Sarah, Sprint is controlled by a Japanese company. T-Mobile is owned by a German company. So will there be additional scrutiny by the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S. or CFIUS? As we yes. like to say,
2: yes, and that is kind of the next uh, shoot a drop. We do understand that there there will be a CFIUS review. The companies have already hired a CFIUS counsel, and so um, that is a very opaque process. We are not privy to to the, the reviews and the discussions and the decisions you know made by CFIUS until the very end. But potentially there could be some concern um, about the foreign ownership although there, there are still questions about that because SoftBank does, in fact, already own Sprint. And now, June brought up an interesting point earlier in this conversation. That is about exactly how many players are actually playing in this playing field. Sprint claims uh, it's really more than four, seven or eight. You have said the big four. Where is it and how does Sprint come up with that number? Is it Are they dividing up who gets what piece of the pie? Well, there are other, you know... Companies that have come in and out of the space, you know, Comcast, Charter, they mm-hmm. might, you know, rent airspace from a, a big provider. Uh, they might try to, you know, build their own wireless. I mean, they they have they have been in and out of the market over the years, but they aren't considered, you know, the top national players. And so, yes, I think it does um, work to the company's um, framing to to say, oh, there are all these other players in the market. But the real question is, how many people are really offering national cell phone contracts? And how would that play in the argument that they make? Well, they're really, you know, the, the government has shown in the past, it's talking about, you know, who are the top national providers? So if you are in L.A. or if you are in New York, you know, who are you going to to get your cell phone service from?
0: So, Sarah... The best, a good argument they have is as you talked about the five G, and they'll only be able to make the necessary investments if they merge. But could they accomplish that in other ways with a partnership, for example?
2: Well, certainly. And as I said, the five G argument is an interesting one, but it is it falls outside of the antitrust, of, uh, you know, analysis. So certainly, they could find other ways to to work on five G. So, Is there a timeline that you're watching? These these reviews take a long time. Um, you know, they, this would be a very in-depth review. They are going to analyze all aspects of the market. It could be months. It could even be up to a year. Really? Yeah.
0: And uh, will, will the just about forty-five seconds here? The AT and T Time Warner. Uh, dispute is going to is at trial. There's going to be a decision within a, a short period of time. We expect from the judge. Will that have any influence on the way justice handles this? I mean, these are very different deals. Um,
2: the AT&T Time Warner deal is a vertical deal. It's about marrying a content provider with a distributor. So this is uh, this is outside of of this particular review.
0: All right. Thank you, Sarah. That's Sarah Forden, Bloomberg News Corporate Influence Editor. After telling a judge that he would invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, Michael Cohen won a temporary 90-day stay order in the Stormy Daniels lawsuit. He argued that he couldn't provide an adequate defense against Daniels' claims that a 2016 hush agreement wasn't enforceable without Cohen's testimony. Speaking during the 2016 election, then-candidate Trump offered his thoughts on people who take the Fifth.
1: You see, the mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment?
0: Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, head of the White Collar and Criminal Investigation Practice at McCarter in English. Bob, let's start out with why people take the fifth and whether you can believe them or not, because there's a lot of skepticism about that. But generally, do juries accept the kind of testimony from people who flip more often than they don't?
1: Well, the fact is that they generally do. Um, Cases typically are made not only with documents and um, uh, what we would call sort of hard evidence, but they also require testimony, and most of the time, or at least in many federal cases, that testimony is given through the eyes of one of the co-conspirators themselves, and that is what we would consider informant testimony. It really allows prosecutors to take the jury by the hand and explain a crime as it is unfolding in real time through the eyes and ears of someone who participated in the actual criminal activity.
0: Now, let's turn back to the 90-day stay. Civil trials can take years and years, and parties get delays all the time. So is this 90-day stay a big deal?
1: Well, the circumstance we have here where there is a criminal investigation that's going on at the same time that there is this civil case is something that happens quite often and usually what will happen is there will not be a stay in the civil proceeding uh, people are often whipsawed between the civil case and the criminal case where they have to be concerned about protecting their fifth amendment right not to incriminate themselves in the criminal case but at the same time they want to testify in the civil case here what the judge did is he found that the likelihood of an indictment here was was imminent that it was highly likely that michael Cohn would be indicted and so he decided to allow the civil case to be stayed for ninety days to see what happens in the case, because once there's an indictment, then the case to stay the civil case is much stronger, and that's a circumstance where usually judges will stay the civil case once an individual has been indicted. So you
0: had a judge in L.A. talking about an indictment in the Southern District of New York. Is that unusual for a judge to make a prediction like that, that Cohen will probably be indicted?
1: It is unusual, but I think what the, the reason the judge did it is because the standard is fairly high to stay a civil case when there's only a criminal investigation going on. So in this case, I think the judge wanted to buy some time to see what happens within the next 90 days. He made a particular finding that this case was not a simple criminal investigation. That's an investigation into the personal attorney of a sitting president regarding documents that might be subject to the attorney-client privilege. I think because the stakes were so high here, what the judge wanted to do was wait 90 days and see what happens in the criminal case before he makes a final decision about whether whether to stay the civil case.
0: The speculation about whether Cohen would flip or cooperate with prosecutors seemed to re- reached this fever pitch after Trump's interview on Fox & Friends last week where he tried to distance himself from Cohen, saying he only did a tiny, tiny little fraction, that's a quote, of his legal work. Is it time for Cohen to play Let's Make a Deal? If he were your client, what would you do?
1: Well, nobody really knows what's going on in Michael Cohen's head, except I think it's safe to say that he's probably not getting a lot of sleep these days. He's put in a difficult situation, and what his lawyers are probably advising him is to wait and see what happens. There's really no downside in waiting and allowing the criminal case to play out to see if, if in fact, he's actually charged and to see what that case looks like before he makes a decision about whether he'll cooperate. He would be such a valuable witness for the government that federal prosecutors would no doubt – gladly sign him up, whether that was before or after an indictment.
0: Bob, explain what happens when prosecutors go to the, go to the defendant and ask them to flip and when the defendant goes to them and, and asks for a deal.
1: Well, what usually happens is that prosecutors will explain that uh, a defendant is facing serious charges, that the defendant is facing significant amount of time in jail, and if the defendant agrees to cooperate with the government and provide them with what's called substantial assistance, that at the appropriate time at the sentencing, uh, months or perhaps even years down the road, prosecutors will inform the judge of this valuable consideration, and the judge will be able to take that into to consideration at the time of sentencing. There's no promise as to what the sentence will be. Uh, in the federal courts, there is no lighter plea. So there's no plea bargain at the time of the entry of the plea. It's really all dependent upon how valuable that cooperation is at the end of the day. And that's how prosecutors are able to hold a hammer over the head of the defendant throughout the case, because they don't know what their will be. They don't know how valuable their cooperation will be until after it's completed.
0: And Mueller's prosecutors are holding several hammers right now over different people in this investigation. One other point about Cohen is: no matter what he pleads to, would he tend? He be likely to lose his law license?
1: Well, that's up to a a different um, body. That would be up to the the bar uh, of the state of New York. Um, But typically, if uh, lawyers plead guilty to crimes involving felonies, they're likely to be suspended and likely to be disbarred. Turning to
0: the Stormy Daniels and, and her attorney, there, in the Southern District right now, there's a special master appointed to go through the various documents and, and hard drives, etc., that were seized in that raid on Cohen's office. And Stormy Daniels' lawyer asked to be allowed to join the case because of the evidence seized. Is that something that the judge is likely to allow?
1: I don't think so at this point. I mean, on the one hand, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels can make the argument that the government and uh, Cohen's lawyers have acknowledged that the $130,000 payment that's the subject of the Stormy Daniels case was among the information that was seized in the search warrant. So there is a claim that the evidence that was seized in the uh, search of Michael Cohn's office and his apartment and his uh, hotel room could implicate the Stormy Daniels case. I think at this point, though, the judge is going to allow this special master to go through the evidence. To call out what would be considered attorney-client privilege and to share that information um, with um, the president and his lawyers uh, and, and Mr. Cohn and his lawyers and see how that shakes out. But it is quite possible that at some point, Stormy Daniels' lawyers will also get access to that information if it's clear that it's relevant to their case as well.
0: All right. Well, we will be hearing more about this, certainly from Stormy Daniels' lawyer, who is, uh, as a uh popular on Twitter, it seems, as many other people. Thanks so much, Bob. Uh, that's Robert Mintz. He's the head of the White Collar and Criminal Investigation practice at McCarter in English. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.